You are listening to the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. These talks are made possible in part by generous donations from our listeners. To find out how to support and take part in our community, visit zennovascotia.com. Last week we talked about this point that you should seek a true teacher to practice Zen and study the way. And even as I was leaving last night, I was thinking, oh, that got kind of muddled. I think I tried to say too much. And so I was hoping, I, I thought, well, maybe I can, I can give it one more try. And then on Friday, there was the first uh, of a series of earthquakes in Japan, in Kumamoto, where I lived and where my teacher lives. And then a couple days later, there was another, uh, even more serious one. And that event and watching it this weekend brought into sharp relief for me some things about my relationship with my teacher. He's been on my mind and I, I spoke to him twice over the weekend and it was the first that I'd spoken to him for a very long time. So I thought I would try this once again. You should seek a true teacher to practice Zen and study the way. I tried, but I didn't try very hard. I, uh, I stumbled upon my teacher. He happened to be right there. And then I, I think rather than continuing to seek, I just hoped that he was the real thing. And he drove me crazy from the very beginning. And I think that I did the same for him. We're very different people. He is not what you expect in a monk. He's very casual, even, uh, he's not just casual for a monk, he's casual for a, a Japanese person. It's very relaxed. The first time I met him, he was wearing overalls. I wasn't, I had to ask if there was a priest around. And he said, yeah, it's me. He's about five feet tall. And he took a great interest in me, but he didn't teach me anything. I wanted him to, desperately. And as our relationship developed and as time went on and as ordination approached and as ordination passed, I kept saying, now what? What do I do? Give me homework. Give me a task. Give me something. I thought that he would say, well, memorize this or go do this or do this every day. And he'd, he'd say, oh, just settle down. Just settle down. It's the most annoying response. And so I'd just wait and then I'd ask again. And in the meantime, I was this other creature. I wanted something, you know, 
I, I thought that there was, there was something there and I wanted to know more about the tradition. And, and so on his hand, and he had this, this strange American man who was always kind of pushing him and, and saying, but what about this? What about this? And, and it was all stuff he didn't care about. And we just went on like this. And eventually I went to a monastery where I was trained by other people, some of whom much more temp temperamentally in line with me. And in some ways that was a blessing because I felt that I had found my people. <laughs> right? And we could obsess and, and, and I could ask them all these detailed questions and I could... I could explore this role in a different way. But then I would go back to my teacher's temple and I would drive him even more crazy because I'd go around and I'd fix things, you know, in this kind of ramshackle temple where nothing is lined up and, and nothing is where you would usually put it. And uh, I would show up and, and we'd eat breakfast and then I'd disappear and I'd be, I'd be putting I'd be doing 90 degree angles, you know, and cleaning things and, and trying to make it what I understood it to be. And then I'd go again in two months and it was all back to the way it was. But what I always come back to with my teacher is that he's, he's just very kind. That's his whole expression. He happens, he's a very kind man who happens to be a priest. He would be a kind man if he weren't a priest. He would be a kind man in any suit. But because he wears robes, he gets to be kind in particular ways. He gets to be close to people in particular moments. He's the person that, that sits with you after your mother dies. He would have done that anyway, but no one would have asked him. It's just his nature. I was ordained 15 years ago, and he has, what he has told me about Buddhism, I could probably recap for you in about 60 seconds. All of this has left me thinking this week about this, this part in the text about wood. We talked about this last week. Dogen says, the disciple is like wood and the teacher resembles a craftsman. Even if the wood is good, Without a skilled craftsman, its extraordinary beauty is not revealed. Even if the wood is bent, placed in skilled hands, its splendid merits immediately appear. It's very easy to misunderstand this. Because when we talk about this craftsman and we talk about this piece of wood, I think the impression we get, the impression I get, is that the craftsman looks at the piece of wood and sees something that's there, that's hidden. 
he knows what he's going to get out of that piece of wood. And then he just goes to work and reveals it. But that's not actually how anybody works. He may have an idea, but the craftsman doesn't know what's there. That's what makes that relationship so complicated and so alive. And, and when we frame this as teacher and student, again, it comes down to this kind of openness. If I present myself to a teacher, if I say, I, I stand before you as your student, that means that I must be willing to change. I must be willing to be exposed in some way. I don't know how. That's the scary thing. And the teacher has to be able to look at me and say, okay, we're going to work. I have no idea who you're going to become. It's our natural inclination to want to play God. And the ultimate way to play God is to create someone in your own image. And the easiest way to do that is to start with someone who's already kind of like you. Right? So there's a natural inclination, if you're a teacher, to kind of gravitate towards students who already, who kind of remind you of yourself. You think, I know what to do with this person. A, that's a bad idea, and B, you're wrong. You don't know what to do with that person. For all of my pushing and all of my, my desire for my teacher to give me stuff to do, the fact is that the person I was when I entered the monastery was nothing like the person who left. I kind of thought the whole thing was a cult. I was going to do it because my teacher said I should do it. But I also thought it was pretty nuts. All this chanting and the rules and the suits. And I thought, well, I'll just get through this. I'll get through this and then I'll go back to something authentic. And my teacher knew that about me. He put up with me anyway. But when I came out, I was for a long time a kind of true believer. You know, I had seen this other, I had seen a light. And then he had to put up with that. We speak sometimes of, of putting, of boiling potatoes together. You know, that if you, if you, if you just boil potatoes in a pot, and you stir them up a lot, that eventually they all lose their skins. It just takes care of itself. They're all revealed. That's more like what this craftsman is doing. You're kind of, you're polishing and you're, you're, you're teasing something out. But at the end of the day, you don't, you don't get to choose who a person is. 
you don't get to choose how a person expresses this path. You can offer what you can offer. You only have that. There used to be these wonderful radio commercials for, um, I think for being a foster parent. There was a series of them and they would, you would hear a, a father or you'd hear a man or a, or a woman uh, indulging these kids in their own weird hobbies. I don't even remember anymore. But they had, uh, they were all really nerdy. You know, they, they had really, really in-depth knowledge of things that seemed silly, like model rockets or something, you know. And, and then the message at the end was, it's always enough. If that's what you have, then that's what you have as a parent. Just give that. That's good enough. You don't have to know what you're doing. There's an element of that that's true even in this kind of practice that is so, in some ways, so regimented and so controlled and so, in some containers, so strict. The teacher only offers what the teacher has. And that's sincere. And the student, if the student really is a student, changes through that encounter. Something is lost and something is revealed. I didn't read last time, the very last part. Regardless of his age or experience, a true teacher is simply one who has apprehended the true teaching and attained the authentic teacher's seal of realization. He does not put texts first or understanding first, but his capacity is outside any framework and his spirit freely penetrates the nodes in bamboo. Nodes in bamboo are, are the, the hindrances in our thinking, right? If there weren't any nodes, it would just be this perfectly straight thing. But oh, we bump into something, oh, we bump into something. And even inside, right? You can't pour, it's not a straw. Everything gets cut off. His capacity is outside any framework and his spirit freely penetrates the nodes in bamboo. He is not concerned with self-views and does not stagnate in emotional feelings. Thus, practice and understanding are in mutual accord. This is a true master. I want to point only to this one statement. He does not put texts first or understanding first. So what does he put first? I don't know if effort covers it, but that points to it. Love, himself, What's that? Attentiveness? I'm not going to say. It's a trick question. 
but is not knowledge and it's not something that the teacher simply gets. Neither one of those things has life. There's something else. And that's, I think, what we need to explore, teacher or not. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.